that significant moments in life are marked with special meals. Wedding ceremonies include appetizing and delicious food. Birthdays are celebrated with cake and ice cream, ice cream and ice cream, oh, and candles, and burdens of grief that mark the passing of loved ones are softened by table fellowship. Something significant happens when you share a meal together. Jesus connected with people over meals. The Gospels record numerous occasions when Jesus was at a home sharing a meal. In the accounts of Jesus' life, it seems like when you look at it, he's either going to, at, or coming from a meal. He's at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus enjoying a meal. He's out the, at the home of Simon the Pharisee having a meal. He's inviting himself to Zacchaeus' home for a meal. In each of these times, each occasion, and many, many others, something very special is happening. A meal with Jesus at his table is important. The most significant meal that Jesus shared was the one he experienced with his disciples the evening before his suffering. He gathered his followers together for what they thought was going to be a traditional Passover meal. They thought they were going to celebrate it as they had done for generations before, as as the people of God had once did. But what they didn't know was that they were about to celebrate what God was about to do instead of what he had done. Jesus passed the bread. He shared the fruit of the vine. He spoke of his body, of his blood. And then he said some remarkable words. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this, he said. Practice this. Share this meal. Do it together and do it over and over and over again. This Sabbath, we've gathered for a meal. It's, well, it may appear paltry. It's just a crumb of bread. It's just a little tiny sip of juice. But in reality, it's huge. It's huge. When Jesus gave this moment to reflect on his death and his resurrection and what his life meant, when he gave this moment, he didn't give a theory to ponder. He gave them a meal to share and then to practice. Christians have been practicing this ever since. And it's a place, really, where the good news becomes tangible. The good news becomes real. The good news is experienced by us today. Today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In a few minutes, we'll be separating for the foot washing service 
where you will bathe a brother or sister, family member or friend's feet. Or you may stay here in this sanctuary, which you are invited to do. And then after that, we will be served the bread and the juice that commemorates Jesus' body broken for us and his blood, his life poured out for us, the cup of the new covenant. And it is a time to celebrate, to celebrate, to reflect on what has been, to make confession for missteps, to reaffirm intentions. That's what communion is about. A time when we hold a seemingly meager morsel, but oh so powerful reminder of God's grace, of God's mercy, of his love. This emblem of Christ's suffering in our hands. And when we take them, when we eat them, we accept them, accept them as life, as salvation. We've been journeying together this year, 2019, through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And I'd like to take a moment just to thank Pastor Steve, who was with you last Sabbath and shared an inspirational and practical sermon from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, I know it was special because at midweek service on Wednesday, which we call church night, by the way, you're all welcome to be there. We have a wonderful time together, sharing a complimentary meal and fellowship together. And, and then many children are in children's ministries. But as we were uh, together for that occasion, this last Wednesday night, several of the families who had been here last Sabbath and gathered then there with me were reflecting on Pastor Steve's good words. Still remembering, and I thought, wow, sometimes I can't even remember my own words from Sabbath to Wednesday. <laughs> So they must have been significant. You may be wondering where I was last Sabbath. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I was enjoying beautiful Oahu, Hawaii. And I worshipped together with the vibrant and youthful Kalua Seventh-day Adventist Church. What What a delight that was to worship with them last Sabbath. And we enjoyed a week with our kids and there's, I'm glad you asked for me to show you a picture. I just happened to have it, you know. There's my two granddaughters in their bathing suits enjoying the sands and sun of Hawaii. What a nice time we had. But today, Wafi and I are back with you in Walla Walla. And we're back in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to consider Paul's last words in the third chapter and his first words in the fourth. Because I think they're appropriate for us here on Communion Sabbath. Well, let's look at them. It says, so then, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 21 to 23, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Look at those words. Just contemplate them for a few moments. Here, Paul finishes the chapter in what you might call a rhetorical flourish and talks about the the security and standing that we have in God through Jesus Christ. And he says this because the believers in Corinth were in a tizzy, all wound up and worried about 
this us versus them. About being in one group and not in another group. And they're comparing, they're contrasting, they're evaluating, they're judging, and all this was going on among them obscured a most vital truth that Paul wanted to finish up this section with. And that is that everything is God's. Everything is God's. The church is God's. <laughs> the church is more than just favored teachers like Paul or Apollos or, or Peter. The church is more than that. The church is, is, well, the church is God's. That's what Paul says. The church is God's. He has charge over these servants. These are mere servants, Paul and Apollos and, and Peter. And God owns them too. He is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over all time. The church isn't mine. The church isn't yours. Sometimes I get that kind of fuzzy. I get that kind of mixed up in my own mind as a, as a pastor. Sometimes I've caught myself with the Spirit going about my own duties as if the church is my career. As if the church is just an instrument of my advancement. As if the church is a reflection of, of my acumen. Sometimes I get kind of fuzzy about that. Like the church is some kind of a competitive sport or competitive business. The church isn't about March Madness. Thank God for that. The church isn't about highlighting superior learning or better goodness or more management, better management. The church is God's. This is God's church. He's in charge, and I'm just here doing the chores. <laughs> and so are you. We're all servants of God, which means that <clears throat> whatever happens here, as it changes, as it grows, it will really be impossible for us to determine exactly ahead of time which way we're going to go, which may be a bit disconcerting for some of us. But isn't it nice to know that He's in charge, and not me, and not you. Isn't it nice to know that we don't need to make human connections our boast? That God is the creator, God is Lord of the universe, and because of that, because of him, because of what he has done, we are in him through Jesus Christ. We are a part of his amazing purposes in the world. That means that I can be free of the scramble for approval from others, which I too often am all about. Because he already has everything that will make my life happy, everything that will make my life purposeful. He's already about that. That's what he says there in these verses. Take a look at them again. He says, all things are yours, says Paul. All things. Why? Because everything is God's. And you're his. So don't get sidetracked with influence peddling. Don't get sidetracked with the idea that you have something more because you're with someone more. Now, not the case. True wisdom doesn't come from the ties of human significance. God is in charge. That's what Paul says. And he's working everything for you, your good. That brings me so much peace and satisfaction. 
to know that God is working in everything, in every appointment, in every conversation, in every friend, and yes, in every enemy. God is at work. He is at work. He causes everything, he says. He, although he doesn't cause it, he brings it about that everything will work for my good, for my better. It may not be good, but God will cause it to work for my good. And I say, thank you, God. I say, thank you for that. And that happens as I love and as I abide in him every day. God has lined up everything. Think about it. God has lined up everything for your blessing, for your enrichment, for your growth, for your purpose. Everything. That's what Paul says. All things are yours. All things. Then Paul lists them. He says, the world. Yeah. The world, even with its fortunate but oftentimes unfortunate circumstances. Don't let that deter you. Don't let that feel like you're deprived. The world, it may, you may feel like you're nothing but a bunch of missed opportunities. But that won't limit you, Paul says. The world, even with its troublesome acquaintances... That will not disadvantage you. Why? Because the world is God's. He has that in his charge. And then he says, the world and life, life with its trials, life with its advantages, life, every hour of it, every tribulation of it, the whole course of it will advance you. That's what Paul says. Will bless you, will strengthen you, will prepare you for the beautiful future that God has in place for you. It may not appear that way now, but God is in charge. God is working through the world, through life, and then Paul says the next word, through death. Yes, even that solemn, that most dreadful hour, that darkest and most foreboding thing on earth to face without faith. Paul says, you don't have to worry because death, that is so fearful for those who have life without God, death. That's yours, Paul says. That's yours. It's no longer your enemy. It comes to you in Christ as rest. Rest to the aged. Rest to the weary. Just like the closing of your eyes at the end of a long day brings renewal to tired bones. That's what death is. And you've seen that happen with loved ones who have faith in God. As the sleep of, wait, of death awaits those waiting for Christ's return, we know that it comes as just a temporary sojourn, a, a brief sleep that will open up at Christ's return to eternal joy and peace and life in Him. So death, he says... Don't worry, it's God has that in charge. Then he goes on to the next. Or the present. Every occurrence is providence. Think of that. Every occurrence is providence. Yes, God's providence. Because God rules. He's present in it. He's present for you. And he will never, he says, leave you or forsake you. He is our refuge. He is our strength. And he says the present or the future. That's the next thing that he lists. 
as exciting or as, as, as threatening as the future may appear to you, the whole order and economy of life awaits you and even, even now is working together for your good through God in Jesus Christ. All are yours, Paul says. All these things are yours. Why? Because you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You're called by his name. You've accepted him as Lord and Savior. You've embraced his life-giving, life-directing, life-renewing, life-changing word. And because you've done that, your life is in him. Your future is in him. Your present is in him. Even life and death and, and the world is in him. You can cast your weight on him. You've opened your heart to him and accepted his grace and acknowledged his sovereign will in your life and set him as a foundation of your existence and placed him as, as Lord and King over your life. And Paul says, if you have Jesus Christ, you have everything you need. Everything you need. Because Christ is of God. Jesus Christ, the second person of the eternal three-in-one Godhead. Jesus Christ, who came as God's grace and mercy for us in the eternal ages past, before the beginning of time, God made a plan for you and for me. It was decided that God's love, God's grace, would be extended in atonement for us, for our mistake, for our sin. So Jesus came. Jesus came in eternity. God in human flesh became human flesh, the incarnation, became our mediator, became our advocate, our savior, so that we can have life today and we can have life forever. That's what Paul says. So, so taking God as your portion, taking God as your portion, Paul says, you have all these things, the world, and life, and death, the present, the future, and every good thing besides. You lose nothing. You gain everything, everything that matters in Jesus Christ. And that's what God has for you, and that's what we celebrate today in communion. In a few minutes, you're going to be taking that bread symbolizing Christ's body, surrendered up in eternal salvation for you. In a few moments, when you're going to be taking that cup filled with the fruit of the vine, representing Christ's blood, the blood of the new covenant, that blood that flowed from his body, his hands, his feet, his forehead, his side, as an eternal payment for your salvation for your forgiveness, for your eternal life, to buy you back. The cup and the bread are physical truths that God is your Lord. He's your sovereign. He's your king. And I would challenge you, take those emblems in a few moments. Take those emblems as a testimony that he has charge. He has charge over the world, over life, over death, over the past present and future over all things and that in Jesus Christ in Christ's sacrifice for you you are one with him we're going to separate now for foot washing